that's the night traditionally when the borders between this world and the other world are completely open. And so it's from this cave in these tales on Samhain night and Halloween night that all sorts of creatures emerge to devastate the land so nothing will grow until the following spring. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? Oh, it's going so well today, Tim. You know why? You know why? why? Because we are entering the season of Sawin. That's correct. And uh, you may have noticed we've even got a different logo for uh, for the month of October uh, to represent Halloween. And this is a very Halloween-centric episode where we're actually discussing where Halloween came from. The origin story of Halloween, and this came to us by way of a random notification on our phones that that directed us to this article about these hell caves that are apparently the birthplace of Halloween, and they are located in the extremely small community of Rathcrohan, Ireland. And we were lucky enough to speak with uh, a fellow who runs tours over there. His name is Mike McCarthy, a uh, really well-spoken guy and a lot of fun to talk to about this, these legendary tales and uh, just some history about Ireland and, and Sawin, Lance. Is that how you pronounce it? Sawin? I think it could go Sawin or Sawin. Okay. It looks like Sam Hain. Right. So folks out there, I had pronounced that Sam Hain for years. It's actually Sawin. Or Samhain. But it's basically Halloween, right? It is the time of the year where you're changing seasons from the summer to the winter. So you're harvesting your crops and you're preparing the land to enter winter. So that's the doorway of the spirits. And that's essentially where costumes come from, collecting things from your neighbors comes from. And we've sort of translated that or it's morphed into kids putting on costumes and going door to door trick-or-treating and getting candy and and you can hear mike tell the story of this and and the origin of it and it's incredibly cool you might want to slow it down this might be one of those episodes where you don't listen at 1.5 you might want to listen at 0.5 because this is a guy who's very irish and loves to tell the story and he's quite a good storyteller and i don't want you to miss anything Apparently, I missed where egging people on Halloween came from in Ireland. I guess that didn't come from Ireland, but uh, but I do understand where the rest of the, the uh, traditions now came from um, it, because of this conversation. And so it was. It's fun. It's educational, and uh, it's a nice history lesson. But it doesn't feel boring to learn. And we referenced the article in National Geographic, and you can check that out by going to nationalgeographic.com. The story was composed by and photography was taken by Ronan O'Connell. So it was a very good, about a 10-minute read, really interesting. And then make your way over to the Rathcrohan Visitor Center website. And the link to that is in the show notes. And this is the organization that our guest, Mike McCarthy, works for and does tours with. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode and have a great Halloween. Celebrate Samhain safely. No egging. Use those eggs for an omelet instead. Thank you. 
Welcome to the podcast. Mike McCarthy, how are you today? I'm good. Good to be with you. It's uh, fantastic having you here. Um, just a quick little bit of uh, background on why you are on the show today. Sometimes I get these random news bulletins or notifications that pop up on my phone, and I received one that was a link to an article about the origin of Halloween and these Irish hell caves. Immediately I click on it and then immediately send it to Tim to say, like, we have to get this guy on, Mike McCarthy, who is very familiar with the region, uh, the background, the the folklore um and you're gracious enough to join us so uh thank you very much for doing that and um honestly like it's very cool to talk to somebody who's in ireland right now and i'm going to apologize for the absolute murdering of some of these names that that will happen during the conversation not at all you're absolutely grand (laughs) and well one thing i could say maybe that um, and thanks very much again for having me one thing i think we could maybe put paid to would be uh the the term hell is a little bit strong you know and there's a reason maybe why why um this monument you refer to this cave um achieved that moniker but uh we we think we tend to try and maybe dispel that myth that it's an entrance to what's referred to as the other world and so so, but uh we spent quite a bit of time as you say we're we're tour guides here around in this landscape. We have a visitor interpretive center museum here in the center of Rathcrohan, and we spend quite a lot of time down there. So I, I think we can testify that it's certainly not a gate to hell, or if it is, we've come back as well. But it, it, it's it's recorded in our medieval literature, um, this cave that you refer to um, as an entrance to the other world. And this other world is a very uniquely Irish concept because uh, it's not an underworld. It's not a place like, um, say, hell or Hades or Valhalla, because you don't have to die in order to access it. So there's various ways to to get into it. It's a parallel dimension, if you like, that surrounds us all about. Some ways to go is uh, to sail far off over the sea to the west. We know now we'd probably end up in your house if we went that way, that we wouldn't come to the other world. Sometimes it's thought to be deep beneath the earth. So areas like wells, caves particularly, and bogs with deep pools of stagnant water were seen as areas of access to it. And then we have these monuments, um, early medieval monuments in Ireland referred to as ring forts. Now ring forts um, are early farmsteads and they're left, if you like, as earthen earthen features on the landscape uh, dotted left, right and centre around the country. There's actually approximately 48,000 of them um, still extant on the landscape as well. But colloquially, they're referred to as fairy forts. And these are thought to be uh, dwelling places of um, the beings who dwell in the other world. And as I say, traditionally as well, these are seen as areas of access uh, into this dimension, if you like. So it's said to be, um, it's said to be again, colloquially uh, inhabited this other world by what are referred to as the fairy folk of Ireland. But uh, these aren't fairies, if you like, in the Disney Tinkerbell sense. These are much more formidable individuals. These are the, um, if you like, the immortals of Ireland, the people in legend who lived here before we arrived. They fought a great battle up at a place called Taltu, Teltown in County Meath, were defeated and then went to inhabit, as I say, this otherworldly dimension that can be accessed by certain routes and also at certain times of the year. I feel like I deserve a... Um, a degree now in in <laughs> in in this uh, this subject matter that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and before we, oh no pun intended, go deeper into the <laughs> topic, um, can you give a little bit of a background on yourself and maybe the geography of where this is located? You know, in the in the scope of Ireland. 
Absolutely. Yeah. As I say, I'll, I'll carry on and feel free to interrupt me as well. But um, my background is originally I would be in a in a second career here, if you like. I originally um, qualified uh, as a pharmacist, so I had a scientific background. I was worked as a community pharmacist for nearly 20 years. And then I had a huge um, love of Irish mythology and history. And so that brought me approximately seven years ago to this site here. This is uh, area of Rathcrohan is what's described as the prehistoric royal site a royal capital of Connacht, the Western province, and uh, some of your listeners I'm sure are very familiar where we're located here. And so um, I then did a qualification uh, through here um, in archaeology as well. So I would be on a, a second career here. So um, we have a museum visitor centre here, um, an interpretive centre. So we what we do is we interpret the landscape all about us here for visitors, um, as I say, through museums, through guided tours, and through our publications as well. So and um, that's I suppose that's my background that's what keeps me off the streets as well and, and the visitor center here is actually it's a community it's a community run group so it's a not-for-profit center anything that uh, it makes or takes goes back into the minding the keeping the promotion and if you like the of the landscape all about us here like and as I say it's uh, I suppose um, getting it wider known to a wider to a wider audience and also to to mind it preserve it and to keep it and so if anyone wants to check it out, it's on our website is um, www.rathcrohan.ie. There's all sorts of things you can get onto there. You can check out. We have virtual tours. You can take a virtual journey into the cave down through it there as well. If you don't want to cross the Atlantic to do it, and it'll tell you a little bit all about it and all our various publications and activities as well. So that's that's my own background. That, that's as I say, that's what keeps me off the streets and uh, keeps the public safe from me. So. Now, one thing I'm curious about is how can you be so sure this uh, these caves don't lead to hell? Like, how deep have you gone? As well, well what what this cave you refer to today, um, Tim, um, is um, wouldn't be if you like, it wouldn't be that substantial a cave anymore. So, um, what we're left with, and I sh- it's important for me to stress, what we're left with today are the underground remains of what would have been a more substantial st- structure. So. There's a natural underground limestone cave, um, about 40 meters of it remains underneath the ground today as well. It's accessed then by what's referred to as the souterrain. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but a souterrain is a man-made passage or entrance. And actually it's directly behind you there. What you're looking at is the entrance. It's a crawl space into the cave as well. And so this would have been, uh, souterrains generally tend to, uh, to date to the early medieval period. So anywhere between the fifth and the 10th century. So we'd be talking maybe 1500 to 1000 years ago. Um, this dry stone structure would have been, uh, uh, would have been constructed. So you can see it's well stacked kind of in around you as well. There's a, yeah. a technique called, as, a, as I'm looking out there, I'm looking out towards the entrance, but to my right hand side, as I'm looking towards you, it would carry on down. There's what's known as a corbelled roof on it. It's a structure of supporting um, lintel stones, roof stones right down. And that goes on for about uh, nine to 10 meters. So all told, um, what's left today underground is about 50 meters of an underground cave. So we would daily travel down into it and have a look around it. So I'm fairly sure it doesn't lead into hell anymore. <laughs> anyway, at that rate. So. <laughs> Okay. Now, why did why, people say that it did? That's bringing you back, I suppose, to an idea of what this, where this cave is situated and the landscape that it's on. So as I say, it's situated um, in Rathcrohan or Cruachan, which is the Irish forest as well. And that's described as the prehistoric royal site of Connacht. 
So these royal sites, if you like, in Ireland, um, in times long ago, before you had any towns or roads or villages or cities, you only begin to get the first towns founded in Ireland in the ninth century, approximately, with the company of the Vikings. I'm sure you're familiar with those as well. So um, cities like Dublin, Cork, Watford, Limerick, those are originally Viking settlements. Before that, in Ireland, you've got a much more smaller, scattered farming population, a country largely covered in bog and forest as well. And these royal sites then traditionally would have been used as places of gathering. So when people needed to come together and because they're a farming community, particularly times important to agriculture. So times like spring, summer, harvest and winter, which is Samhain, the original Irish Halloween, the winter festival as well. People would have gathered here together. Their moniker then the royal sites because these great assemblies or Enigi they refer to in Irish and they were particularly associated then with the crowning and the inauguration of kings. So um, when you get then, as I say, these are places of very important assembly of ceremony. And so then in the fifth century, say approximately 15 to 1600 years ago, when you get Christianity coming to Ireland, you find then that uh, possibly to ease the conversion process, a large reuse of already important places, sites, and things like that by the Christians when they come. So for example, the royal site in Ulster, our equivalent um, up in County Armagh, is referred to as Amon Maka. Uh, so the diocesan centre of the Catholic Church and the Church of Ireland is located in Armagh, just less than 500 metres from that site. St. Patrick, I'm sure you're familiar with him, and same as ourselves, his biographers record him, coming here to Kruokan, founding churches, erecting standing stones in around and thing like that. And so you find the Christianization of already, if you like, cultural phenomenon and places around that time. But uh, when the early Christian scribes, when they came to deal with this uh, entrance to the other world, I suppose it sort of uh, it stumped them, and so they monikered it in one text uh, as Doris Ifrin Neheran. So Doris is the Irish for door, Aaron for Ireland, and Ifrin, as you can probably deduce from that, as entrance to hell. But I think uh, it might have been done as a, a little bit tongue in cheek, if you like, as well. It, uh, maybe it's, it's not quite an entrance to hell. But this other world, as I say, it's a, it's a unique dimension because it can be, uh, it can be a paradise like world as well, but it can also be a, it can also be a slightly malevolent place as well, depending on a, depending on how you go there and what time and what's happening around as well. So maybe a little bit suspicious of that monument. They didn't have a reuse for it. So uh, maybe maybe that's where the, the moniker came from. Yeah. Fill us in a little bit on this uh, malevolence that you're talking about, because I feel like that's got some root in uh, American Halloween as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so when you're looking, I suppose, um, I say at the four pre-Christian, if you like, uh, Irish or Gaelic festivals, you have Mbolloch, which is springtime, Bealtaine, which is summer, uh, Lunasa, which is harvest, and then Samhain, which is the original Irish winter festival. And because this um, Samhain, if you like, it's the night that borders the seasons of summer and winter, that's the night traditionally when the borders between this world and the other world are completely open. So you have to consider for a farming community, who are directly dependent on their landscape, on their environment for their survival. I mean, as I say, at that time, survival is a hard game. If you have no means, maybe over winter time to feed your cattle, you're going to, if you like, have to slaughter the majority year upon year. A bad harvest or a bad year would be disaster, probably beyond what we could comprehend. The threat of starvation would never be very far behind you as well. So it's, I suppose, at Samhain at winter, this is your last chance to have a celebration, if you like, uh, before you prepare for facing three or four very, very hard months ahead. And as I say, because this night traditionally, Samhain, is the night that borders summer and winter, that's the night traditionally when the borders between this world 
and the other world are completely open. Now, it's interesting, this cave you refer to here, in all of our epic medieval literature, there's a whole body, um, if you like, of literature associated with this site here, Rathcrohan, because as I say, what we know now today about it is that it's actually a ceremonial site. We've got burial monuments here, high status dwelling places, all of those things as well. But in our epic literature, um, it's the site where the town Balcunia begins and ends. So I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is a, a tale called the Cattle Raid of Cooley. And for Ireland, this would be the equivalent of our Iliad and our Odyssey rolled into one. It's our national epic. And it involves a very famous figure called Queen Maeve. I don't know if you've come across her. She rules Connacht from here. And the war she has um, with uh, King Conor MacNessa of Ulster as well. So, um, and this great cattle raiding tale where she invades his territory to steal uh, an animal known as the Brown Bull of Cooley. So as I say, for Ireland, it's our national epic. But what's lovely for us here in Crookan is it begins and ends here. So there's a huge body of folklore or mythology associated with this site. This is all written down for us. Uh, they're set these tales uh, of the Ulster cycle, they refer to back in the Iron Age, so maybe approximately 2,000 years ago, but they're written down for us um, by monks in the medieval period, maybe up to, if you like, anywhere between the 7th and the 12th centuries. So this she, this cave of Kruken that you're referring to, occurs right throughout this epic literature as well. And so it's from this cave in these tales on Samhain night and Halloween night, that all sorts of creatures emerge to devastate the land. So nothing will grow until the following spring. So every Samhain night, um, a flock of birds and their breath is so horrid, it causes all the leaves and berries to rot in the trees, comes flying out of this otherworldly cave. Um, three wild boar come out everywhere they walk, the ground withers in their wake, nothing will grow again. Um, where they've walked as well. Triple-headed monsters comes out of there, uh, female werewolves, all sorts of these, if you like, um, demonic or ghastly creatures on Halloween night, so nothing will grow until the following spring. Now, this is a night, I suppose, because the other world is much, much closer. You're not supposed to be out and about, but if you did want to go out, the reason people used to dress and disguise themselves is they would disguise themselves as one of these creatures so they wouldn't be taken back down through the cave and into the other world. So isn't it interesting, as I say, where uh, the custom of disguising yourself as something uh, malevolent, if you like, on the night of Halloween comes back, not only, if you like, to the original Irish festival of Samhain, but to some of the customs and stories associated directly with the remains of this monument in its day one of the most important sacred places in the country. I think if you've seen from that article you looked at there, it's today, it's on private farmland. What's on the top is mostly destroyed. There's some of the underground remains there. Everything has an origin point, if you go back far enough. Um, often they're lost, but we're very lucky, if you'd like, just to have this very unique monument in all of Ireland uh, still there for us today. So as I say, wherever you are on Halloween night in the world and you hear it, knock on the door and the kids are there and they're trick-or-treating, I don't know what they disguise themselves as these days. There can be all sorts of funny interpretations, but where that tradition of dressing at Halloween, as I say, comes back not only to Ireland and to the original Winter Festival of Samhain, but particularly to this monument here in Rathcrohan of Oinagat. So, Oinagat. So. Wow. Okay. I feel so embarrassed because I love Halloween. I love the season. And I had no idea that that's where it came from. And that's why... I think I might have had like half an idea that 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 mm. why people dressed up, um, mm. but I didn't have the full idea, and and I feel embarrassed because it's like my favorite holiday. I also feel embarrassed because I've always pronounced it Sam Hain because that's how it looks that's when it's true, uh, yeah. Samhain. Yeah, so when you get when you get the M H together in art, there's no W in the Irish alphabet, and so sometimes you get a combination of letters to make the necessary sound. So when you find an M H together, it makes the worst sound. So that's oh, really? the only. 
for that. So yeah, so a phonetic spelling would be with the W if you like like that. But I'd say that's 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 why. But I mean, if you looked at it directly and you pronounced it, you would say, of course, you would say Samhain, but it's Samhain. God, 15 minutes in and I feel like a hundred times smarter. No, absolutely. Well, that's good. That's how I feel. I've done that's good. I wouldn't want to listen to me too much. Like <laughs> no, that. I disagree. So back then people would dress up to scare away uh, spirits that they, that was the, the idea. Well, the thing is, I suppose this other world, um, it's a place that you can go to. Um, so uh, it's very well known, actually. Um, it's it's uh, in in various tales as well. In later tales, you might be familiar with uh, with the Fiona and Fionn McCool, maybe. And his son Oshin goes to this place uh, referred to as Chirnanog in Ireland, which is the land of everlasting youth. A lot of cultures, if you like, have something like that. And um, this Chirnanog is one and the same. So it's a paradise world often. So people never grow old there. There's a never ending supply of food and time flows differently as well. So it's as I say, it can be a paradise like world, but it also can be a, quite a malevolent world. And there's a very famous story actually associated with this cave called uh, in Irish, Exeter Nera, which are the strange adventures of Nera. Now Nera is an Iron Age warrior and he's one of the best in Queen Maeve that I refer to, this Queen of Connacht and the Thon, one of the best in our army. On one Samhain night, on Halloween night, Nera witnesses um, an army of the other world emerge right out of the cave from where you are there, Tim. So you could be in a dangerous position there as well. They come out, they come out on Samhain night and they attack and destroy and burn Queen May's palace here in Kruokan to the ground. Now Nera, he sees this army heading back down through the cave, bearing the heads of his friends away on spikes. So he gives chase to them because the entrance to the other world is open and he enters the other world down through the cave. And so while he's there, the king of the other world, he discovers him, but he takes pity on him. He doesn't kill him. He gives him a wife, a job, a role in society. His job there is actually to gather wood, if you like, as well. So as I say, he's in this paradise-like dimension. But after three days down in this other world, he begins to lament for his friends that he lost near. And so he says to his wife, you know, I've, I feel terrible. I've lost my friends. And she tells him, actually, what you saw never happened. It's a vision of what will happen on the following summer, next Halloween, if you don't return and warn Maeve and her husband, the King Alil, about what's going to happen. So Nira emerges back up through the cave. Now he spent three days down there, but he finds his friends sitting around the fire as if no time had passed at all. Because as I say, time flows differently in this other world. And um, I mentioned Ushin when he goes to Chirnanog, he spends one year there. When he, when he returns to Ireland, 300 years have passed. The opposite happened to Nira. He went down to the cave for three days. When he comes back, no time has passed at all. So as I say, time flows funnily in this dimension. Now Nira returns at Samhain at wintertime, but the way he proves the story to Maeve that he's telling the truth is he bears with him from out of the cave, out of the other world, the fruits of summer. So he brings wild primrose, golden fern, garlic to lay down before the queen so she knows he's telling the truth. And the following Samhain, when the entrance to the other world is open once again, Maeve and her husband Alil, they have their army ready and they invade the cave and they beat the otherworldly host and army. They rout them. They destroy the she and they gather huge treasure from out of there and bring them up to their palace in this world. But while Nira has been gone, his wife has given birth to a son. And because he's spent a year now up in this world, this son is now a fully grown man. And so Nira decides to remain. And the monk who wrote down that tale for us way back in the medieval period, he wrote down at the end, he'll stay down there in the cave till doomsday. He's never going to come out. Now, I haven't come across him. I don't know, maybe you can see him down there to your left somewhere, Tim, but I haven't come across him down there yet. But there, as you say, is something that happens to Nira. He has a very strange experience um, down in that cave. And it's, as I say, one of the few stories associated with it. 
and that happens at that time. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Um, and actually, an interesting one springs to mind, if I'm not if I'm not jumping ahead of you at all there as well, comes from uh, when you mentioned the name, so as Oi Nagat. So in Irish, um, that's the anglicized or English version of Uv Nagat. So Uv is the Irish for a cave, Na of the... And gat is genital plural of cats, so cave of the cats. And that also comes from, uh, um, or possibly comes from um, an echo of uh, another foretale or background tale of the great Thon Balcuni, the cattle raid of Cooley, um, a story called Brickrew's Feast. And this Brickrew character is a warrior of Ulster, and he, uh, but he meets his death actually down here in Cruachan, which is another day's work. But uh, he's a troublemaker, Brickrew, he's a satirist. And he's, uh, his poetry is said to be so sharp that uh, it can actually make a big boil or a blister rise up on your face. Now, back at that time, uh, physical perfection was, uh, was a very important matter. For example, a king couldn't be king unless he was completely unblemished. So a man who had the ability uh, to disfigure you with his tongue alone uh, was a very dangerous character. His full name actually in Irish was Nevtanga, which means wicked tongue or poison tongue. And he's also often compared actually to the Irish equivalent of the Norse god Loki, you know, this, uh, this mischief-making character as well, not to be trusted. And in the story of Brickroo's Feast, he throws a great feast where he wants all the warriors of Ulster to attend. And they don't want to do it because he knows he's up to no good. Uh, but eventually, after he threatens to wreak havoc across the whole island, they have to agree to this feast. And so before it begins, he tells the three champions of Ulster, Cúchulainn, you may have come across this warrior, Cúchulainn, he's something like the Irish version of uh, Achilles, if you like. He's, a, he's a, the, the, the ultimate warrior, if you like. Cúchulainn, another warrior called Conor Kerna, and another called Leo Rebuida. He te- tells each of the three warriors that they're entitled to the champion's portion at the feast. Now, this is usually the roast to hind quarters of a pig, and it's presented to the foremost warrior. So before the feast begins, he tells each of the guys, you know, you're the man, you should claim it. The feast begins, the champion's portion is brought forth, and the three warriors stand up to claim it. And of course, all holy hell breaks loose, which is what Brickery wanted. The three warriors, they destroy the feast in the feasting hall and they go rampaging around the country competing over this trophy portion. At one stage, they take themselves down to Connacht to gain a judgment from Queen Maeve. And so they arrive up here and to test them, Queen Maeve releases three magical wildcats from out of the cave. Again, Tim, you're right in the line of fire there. Anything could run over your armies, cats, you name it, wild boar, magical birds. Really, really picked the wrong virtual background. I was going to say, you know, he could he could be in danger. You're probably all right for another what, another two weeks, maybe <laughs> until Halloween. So maybe uh, maybe you're okay for the moment. So these three cats are released, and uh, if you like to separate themselves, the warriors have to spend the night with them. In the morning, uh, Connell and Nira, two of the warriors, are hanging from the rafters, terrified, while Cucullin 
um, if you like, the foremost warrior is sitting in the corner, eating his trophy portion of meat, whacking on the nose of the sword, any cat who deigns to come near him. It's how he becomes declared champion of Ulster. And again, as a foretale of the great Pawn Bokuni, the Cattlery de Cooley, how he becomes worthy to defend it um, in that epic tale. But maybe an echo, if you like, of these three magical wildcats uh, that come out of the cave, maybe an echo in the modern day name, the Cave of the Cats as well. We can't say for sure, but if you like, there's a there's a possible a possible reason for the moniker. Uh, I'm gonna say it's definitely uh, because of that. But um, wh- what about sacrifices? It wasn't because of uh, any animals being sacrificed over there, right? Well, you can't say as well. So, and um, a point in that is, as I say, when you I mentioned in the fifth century, you get the coming of Christianity to Ireland, and with that, that brings the Latin alphabet, and that's the first attempts to, uh, to put the Irish language down into writing. So before that in Ireland, when you're getting on to kind of a pre-Christian period, we have no written history from back in that time. So we know that people were religious, we know they believed things, but what they did, we can't say for sure. And so that's, if you like, where um, when you come to that article, you refer to as well, there's some uh, there's some severe artistic license has been taken in it, if you like, with that. So as I say, what people were doing in prehistoric Ireland, we can conjecture, we can propose, but we cannot say for sure as well. We know, for example, that they were certainly religious um, because they treated their dead and they buried them with grave goods, things like that as well. But what specific form that religion took, we cannot say as well. So, But as I say, you only begin to get written history and all of this history before that in Ireland, as much as we know our tradition would have been something like we're doing now, a passage of knowledge down orally. So a lot of that would have been lost if it wasn't for these, if you like, medieval monks recording all these um, early tales for us in Irish as well. They, as I say, they were they were learned scholars. They were uh, recording biblical um, psalters, various texts in Latin, but they were the first, um, the first group to write, if you like, these tales down for us in the Irish language. And so that's when we get our first written history, plus all these myths and legends as well. It's fantastic. And in fact, actually where you are, Tim, right behind you, if you can see the stone right behind your head, um, that's what's referred to as an ohm stone. So I don't know, can you see the markings? along that lintel stone there oh, oh yeah. yeah right on the top mm. so i don't know so that's actually the earliest form of irish writing ohm and so it dates anywhere from the fourth century onwards so it's a primitive form of script and each of those little groups of carvings along the stem line of the corner represent a letter and so um ohm stones is about 420 approximately still remaining uh, between ireland western scotland and wales they're usually standing stones to mark a grave or a border. They're like a signpost, if you like. So they might contain a family or a place name as well. And so that one directly behind you there has been uh, recycled, if you like, re- deliberately reused in the construction of the souterrain, the man-made entrance there in the medieval period. And the inscription on that, um, the stone on it reads, uh, the stone of Freak, son of Maeve. So it's, which is Vricky Maki Maeve. So, um, Maeve, if it's our own Queen Maeve that it refers to this, if you like, mythical Iron Age warrior queen. And if it is, and I suppose it's in her home place there, that's the earliest written reference we have to her on the island of Ireland. The warrior Freak that's referred to on it there is another warrior from these Ulster cycles of tales. And this warrior Freak, before the Thawn, the great cattle raid to Cooley, uh, he arrives down here to Rathcrotton because he wants to marry Maeve and Ali, the daughter of Finnevar. She's a very famous beauty, and Freak is said to be the most handsome man in the island of Ireland or in Scotland. So obviously he was a very good looking man, as you can tell, we're all a very, uh, very handsome race indeed as well. He's successful um, with his wooing, but before, if you like, this happens, 
Maeve and Ali are afraid that the couple are going to elope and that they won't re receive her dowry, her bride price. And so they try to kill Freyth initially. They try to do him in. They put him swimming in a pool where a water serpent lives. He receives a terrible wound. And while he's lying on his sickbed in Rathcrahan, a host of women of the other world, because Freyth was a much beloved warrior. He was one of the most famous warriors in Connacht, came out of the cave, the Shea of Krukan there, bore his body back down into the other world and returned in the next day, completely unblemished, warrior-like, king-like once again. And now we come down here all this time later and we find his name written up on the front door. And if it tells you anything, it tells you at least that the people who constructed the souterrain, maybe anything up to 1500 years ago, that they're aware of this tale. This is a medieval tale. It's contained again in some of our great medieval epic texts as well, that they're aware of this tale, the same as we are as well, that they've placed his name over the door. They know what's happened, if you like, to this, uh, to this warrior back down there. So it's a lovely signpost, if you like, and a lovely link with times past that we're considering when we come down to this cave, this entrance to the other world. Uh, some of the same stories and myths and legends that these people were aware of at that time as well. So a, a nice link, if you like, straight to times past. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And are you um, directly involved in discovering some of these uh, early writings? Like, are you down in the caves, like looking around with, you know, like a headlamp on and stuff? Oh, no. Well, as I say, those those there are known, if you know what I mean. So actually, an own writing in Ireland is most common in the south of the country. There's, there's only six recorded here in County Roscommon, where I am as well. Three of them are on the landscape here at Crook, and one of them is at a church site. Um, off to our east and two of them are incorporated into the man-made souterrain that you're talking about there one of them would be to Tim's right but it's actually to the right hand side of you that passage is collapsed so we can't read it it can't be read it can we can just see there's an old inscription on it but that one where you are there it's in very good condition you can see it's in out of the elements it's been well preserved it's easily read within that as well but that's that's known to be there if you like um, for at least a couple of hundred years as well so i would love to discover something like that <laughs> so but as i say i get to look at it every day and it passed down underneath it yeah. well we'll send you some crawl space stickers and maybe like uh behind one of those rocks you can just like slap it there and then like in a few you know maybe five or ten years just throw some dirt on it and be like holy shit this is how long has this been here my god they're, they're a, a company of antiquity. Yeah, for, they've been around for a long time, you know. So as you, say, you, could, you could trace your origin all the way back. And, Did this come from hell? Uh, I suppose another, not from hell, but uh, that cave as well. When you mentioned malevolence as well as an association, I think I, I mentioned a couple of stories, I suppose, there. Um, I've mentioned five great Iron Age warriors um, associated with that cave. And this site here of Rathcrahan is really a place... Um, where sometimes um, archaeology and mythology overlap because we think that could be an echo of what the cave and its purpose was actually used for because it's also recorded in all those medieval texts as uh, the home of the Irish goddess of war and her name is the Morrigan. So more in Irish um, means big or great. Ari is a king, Arigan a queen. So Morrigan, which is a great queen or a phantom queen. Now, as I say, she's a, a battle goddess, but she doesn't partake in battle herself. She incites terror uh, throughout her armies as well, So and mayhem. So that's her job as well. That cave where you're sitting there, as I say, Tim, you're a brave man to sit there. I don't know what I sit there for as long as you are. And um, That cave is recorded in all her medieval texts. It's her fit abode, her dwelling place, where she guards the entrance to the other world and makes her way between the two realms. Now, this Morrigan figure, very famously, um, she's a shape-shifting goddess. So um, the most common form that she's associated with is that of the crow. 
and you could think why that might be um, if you could think if you could think of the remains on a battlefield you're going to see the crows aren't you picking along among the remains so that's one of the most famous uh, shapes she's associated with but she also uh, during the thawne to attack Cucullin, this very famous warrior again and initially at the beginning of the thawne in the form of a beautiful maiden she approaches him and offers him her love and he rejects her and this infuriates her and she fails to hinder him throughout his life and also to be there at his death so um, years later when Cucullin eventually meets his death and um, the Morrigan um, she alights down on his shoulder in the form of a crow um, to let the warriors who surround him know that he's finally dead she's fulfilled her prophecy and takes her revenge upon him as well so as you say you're, uh, you're also sitting in the home of, the, of an Irish goddess of war and that's what we think that cave could have been used for um, back in the past as an as a initiation place for young warriors as well as you head down into the bowels of it, it's completely dark. So there's no natural light. It's always the one temperature. Um, it's always about eight degrees centigrade. In fact, souterrains generally were associated um, with ring forts, early dwelling sites. And a, a large function um, we proposed to them would have been used as a cellar actually, underground area, like a fridge, a storage place for food. And you could see actually, maybe that's where an association of a, a different flow of time came from. The time would flow differently as food wouldn't seem to spoil so quickly in these underground areas as well. So it's cool down there. There's no natural sound, no matter what it's doing outside, if it's raining, if it's sunny, if it's spring, if it's summer, it's always the same down there. It's quite disorientating. So if you like, we think it would have been used as a testing ground where young warriors as part of a warrior society would take themselves down in the dark on their own to face the Morrigan into the bowels of the earth, to literally be reborn as a rite of passage. Every culture is something like that, if you like, a traumatic event that you have to pass through, I suppose, to, to prove your passage from youth to adulthood. Uh, we call it secondary school or high school, is it, or the Leaving Cert or SATs or whatever you call it there as well. So I suppose that's what we go through as well. But we think at a time, if you like, of a warrior society, to take yourself down there in a ceremonial site where you're sitting in the middle of there, down into the dark of the earth to literally be reborn. Even the morphology of it is like a birth canal down into the earth. To go down a boy, to re-emerge a man, a proof of yourself and a, a part of society. And we think because of the stories associated with it, the home of the Irish goddess of war and all the warriors who were tested there, we've mentioned Freak, Cúchulainn, Connell, Lyra and Nira. they all go through the middle there. They don't have an easy time of it. And we think that could be an echo, if you like, of, uh, of its use in earlier times and its its purpose and its construction. So as I say, Tim, you'll definitely be a warrior for all that time you spent <laughs> down in there. You've got your stripes. No one's going to mess with you now. Well done. Well done. Yeah. I, I hope not. They better not. So can you kind of take us through what it's like to take a tour with you? Because you're, you're one of the tour guides. And uh, yeah, can you take us through that? Like if, if Tim and I were to book tickets and, and fly over there? Yeah, absolutely. I wish you would. So as soon as I say, maybe as I say, the way the world is opening up again, uh, soon enough, you'll be able to do that. So what we do is we take people uh, initially out. We start off here in the medieval village of Tulsk. Because I say this site here of Rathcrohan um, is the prehistoric royal site of Connacht, a centre of large gatherings. So we head out to the central monument of the entire complex. As I say, there's 240 various monuments here, which is Rathcrohan Mound. And that's, if you like, where a large geophysical survey has revealed that it's a, a ceremonial site as well. Now, we've got 6,000 years of activity on the landscape here. So this area um, of the country is a limestone plain. So it's very fertile. 
it produces um, very fertile grassland, very good for raising cattle, if you like, as well. So a bit actually like, I think, um, I'm told by some of our visitors from the States, very like Kentucky is a very rich uh, limestone plain as well, and good fertile farmland as well, which probably gives us the very best reason why people are here in the first place. As I say, back at that time, 6,000 years ago, when you begin to get the first settled farmers in Ireland as well, when you're directly dependent, as I said, in your environment for your landscape or environment for your survival, good land is going to be everything to you. So we have evidence. So we head out to the central site and we go through, if you like, the history of the area, the time span of it. So we have the central ritual mound of Rathcrohan. We have um, 28 identified burial mounds, so the high status of the Bronze and Iron Age tiles. So Rathcrohan has a number of functions. As I say, it's a site of assembly. It's a site of royal inauguration. But it's also recorded again in our medieval texts as one of the three great pre-Christian cemeteries of Ireland or a burial ground for kings, along with uh, Newgrange, a place you might have heard of, uh, and uh, Taltu in County Meath as well. So as I say, we're on a landscape of ceremony, we're on a landscape of royal inauguration, but we're also in a place of uh, uh, a high status prehistoric cemetery as well. So a very sacred ground over a very, very long period of time. And so we would point out all of those various monuments and we would talk about how people lived, what they did, their lifestyles. And we interweave then the stories from our epic literature of the Thornbow Cooney, the Cattle Raid of Cooley, of Queen Maeve, Coo Cullen, Conor McNassa. And then we take people around uh, just to finish off, just to where you guys are there or where Tim is there around to the cave and we uh, give an overview of some of the stories, rituals, customs associated with that. And then uh, when we finish, we offer them a, a very muddy slide down into the bowels of it, if they wish. Not everyone likes to do that as well because it's, it's not a very appetizing, uh, it's not a very um, appetizing journey as well. But for people who wish at the end, we, we slide them down right down into the, into the center of the cave and uh, <laughs> turn off the lights and leave them there for a few minutes and bring them back up. <laughs> That would be terrifying. Well, I suppose that's uh, well terrifying. We like not too terrifying, but uh, we like to have a bit of fun with it as well, you know. So, and <laughs> um, so we ham it up a little bit, and uh, so scare them a little bit, and then bring them down. But we always bring them back again. I've never left anyone behind, you know. So, and to say that when they come out, they're all warriors, just like you are now. Tim. <laughs> and has anything weird happened? Has anyone come out and said like, "Oh, I felt a hand touch my shoulder" or something like that? Any anything kitschy? Any cats? Yeah, cats. No. Well, there's actually the the house next door has a cat that tends to kind of wander <laughs> over kind of quite a time, and he's a he's quite a distraction actually. If you're trying to do a tour and like maybe you have kind of you know twenty or thirty people, and then a cat shows up and they all go chasing the cat, and you kind of go because and because they're at the cave of the cats, so he can he can. Uh, you can break your concentration somewhat. But it's interesting uh, what you say there, Lance, because this is an unusual place because you get quite a mix of people coming here. So a lot of people are interested, say, in the history here. A lot of academic archaeologists are interested in here. A lot of people, all of these stories um, of Cullen and Queen Maeve, these are things that we learn when we're small in national school. Everyone would be aware of them. So a lot of people like that and they come here for that reason. And then a lot of people come here um with the spiritualistic agenda if you like as well now that wouldn't be anything to say that would personally interest me but what's always lovely is that you could get a blend of people from an academic to someone who wants to commune with the earth all together in one group that probably never would come together under usual circumstances and they all just get along very very well because we spend a couple of hours out and about and in around as well so it brings a it brings a huge uh a huge spectrum 
of different people for different reasons together, as to say, they probably wouldn't usually come together under normal circumstances. And I always think that's a lovely thing as well. And yet they're all here for different reasons. They like the they like this landscape for different ideas. But yet, as I say, they um, they all get something out of it. And I think that's a nice thing. There's something here, there's something here for everybody to take away and out of it as well. And a huge thing actually for people from your side of the pond is that um, Halloween, I'm assured, has become, it really has become quite a massive festival there, hasn't it, you know, so in the last kind of 20, 30 years, and it's become very big here as well, bigger and bigger, but I think that they really get a, a kick out of the fact that you're getting back to a real origin point, if you like, for some of those customs and stories associated with it, so I think, and especially, it's such an innocuous monument now, as I say, it's on someone's private farmland, it's not really visible from the earth up and around. It's just, a, as I say, a narrow little entrance in the verge of a road. The, it would originally have been in the centre of a structure. It's completely destroyed now. The small road runs over the top of it that would have been built in the 1950s. So I think they, uh, I think they really find something, something nice in that, you know, or, and um, something I suppose they can associate all the way back to their own childhood, like, which is always a nice thing. You know, so. And something we all have in common worldwide as well. So. Yeah, for sure. And um, that makes me uh, a bit curious about what level of tourism you desire out there, uh, because here we have like you know, spooky locations. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something? Are you are you content with sort of because I'd never heard of this? I would think, um, say, of the royal sites in Ireland and like Rathcrohan might be one of the most maybe sometimes neglected or forgotten because the western half of the country, if you like, especially this midwestern part here, would often be forgotten. It would be of low population. Really, the activity in Ireland is in the east around Dublin. That's where the population, kind of the nerve centre, the kind of all the work is now and where the majority of the population lives. And so Rathcrohan, if you like, where we're looking at the visitor centre here, um, maybe seven or eight years ago, might have been at quite a low ebb. Um, but we would have just in the last year before COVID had our our best year, if you like, visitor-wise. And we've also been very busy this year. But um, there's a level too, isn't there? I mean, you can overdo something, but I don't think we would be in danger of that. And so, a monument like we're talking about there, I mean, we'll be doing some tours next week around Halloween. We'll maybe take eight or 10 people at a time. There's not really much more that you would take into that. It, it, probably, it probably wouldn't, it wouldn't work as a, as a large theme attraction because it would destroy it. It wouldn't preserve it. So as I say with Rathcohan, we like to do more and more and more with it but far things are going in the right direction. So as I say, we're getting more and more awareness, more and more support, but uh, there's a level two where things can be overdone, can't they? And they can be theme parked and uh, uh, possibly put into danger then by that too, you know? So. I just think you need a parking garage and uh, a few billboards with uh, neon signs, like yeah. real big ones, like think yeah. Las Vegas big. So, and... yeah, like, really kitch it up, like, you know, so uh, maybe a monorail out from the center, out to the side, you know. And a, I was going to say that, too. Yeah. yeah. Something mm -hmm. you can see from space, at least. You know? yeah. And during during the entire month of October, get some nice, creepy up lighting in there. Some yeah. some 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 of that fake spider webs. Maybe have like uh, animatronics uh, jumping out at people. Yeah, yeah, big cats yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Say, yeah. we, rely, we rely on our we rely on our stories to scare people. And what we basically do, we basically like have a bag of torches and we we slide people down in single file because, as I say, it's a narrow crawl space where you're coming in. You crawl down in, you slide down on your bum, you crawl out on your knees. Now down there, it's substantial. You have seven meters up above your head, but um, if you like within with to get in there is not so easy, and it wouldn't lend itself 
too, if you like, a massive uh, sort of tourist attraction. I think that's a nice thing because I think that's going to be its protection in the long run, its geographic location. And the fact also that, as I say, it can only kind of take so much and it's not an easy thing to find because to say it's actually it's on private farmland so it's not well signposted or anything like that we have we have an information panel and some other kind of things like that there as well but I think that's a that's the thing that'll uh, maybe help to preserve it so as a good thing so there's a level or a balance we wouldn't be quite there yet as I say uh, we, we we always like to kind of do a little bit more and promote and keep it as well but if you like the, it can be its advantage too because it hasn't been theme parked it hasn't been spoiled so I think people find it as it's naturally evolved and I think people really appreciate that when they when they come to it if that makes sense oh that makes total yeah. sense and our, our follow-up episode for this will be uh, Tim and I with our GoPros taking a tour going through and then we can we can figure out a location where we can do a live show because I'm 100% uh, bought in on all of this <laughs> oh yeah, come visit us. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take it. Bring, bring, bring your best clothes, your white suit, and uh, we'll take it down into the mud, you know, and uh, get it as possibly as dirty as we can. <laughs> <laughs>